But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Okay, but what if you did want to get more coffee into your life? Well, good news for you, folks. We have a brand new sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show. It is one run-your-mouth coffee free speech. Never tasted so good. The hope is that the delicious roast-to-order coffee provides you with the fuel. Yes, you need to stand up to censorship and proudly run your mouth with amazing coffee to help you truly speak freely from 12-ounce bags up to 2-pound bags all of the coffee from the amazing Run Your Mouth Coffee is roasted to order after roasting delivery. It takes around two to five days, meaning that you will receive fresh roasted coffee made for you at peak flavor. And all coffee varieties are available both in ground and whole bean. From espresso yourself, speak freely, mind changer, pumpkin persuasion, and rebellion beans, Run Your Mouth Coffee has some delicious coffee just in store for you. And folks, if you are a listener of The Brian Nichols Show, you can use code NICHOLS at checkout and get 10% off your order. So head over to Run Your Mouth Coffee. Make sure you use code NICHOLS at checkout. Get 10% off your order and run your mouth today. Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At the Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Alrighty, take a breath. I had to. <laughs> Three episodes in already here. And we're on Wednesday, which, yeah, hi, welcome to the Brian Nichols Show. We've been busy this week. We started things off on Sunday. Joel Getz, running for mayor of East Stroudsburg, PA, launching our inaugural candidate series here in the Brian Nichols Show. Then we had on Monday two episodes, one with the wonderful Spike Cohen, VP candidate, talking about what libertarians can do better, what we can watch out for, which mistakes we've made in the past that we can make sure we do not make going forward, and also a special bonus episode, a one-year anniversary of 15 days to slow the spread Four phenomenal episodes here in the Brian Nichols Show over the past year that we highlighted featuring interviews with Dan Mitchell, Matt Kibbe, Jeffrey Tucker, and Nick Hudson, and it was just such an awesome interview, so I just gotta give, a, again, kudos to my audio guy, Bill. Great job getting uh, those those works uh, spliced together. And then, here, joining us on the Brian Nichols Show today with our fourth episode on our, going back to our normally scheduled uh, routine, folks, we are joined by, from Reason Magazine, Nick Gillespie. He is returning to The Brian Nichols Show. And uh, if you joined us last week, we were with Jack Hunter, and we discussed Republican populism. Well, today, we're discussing Democratic populism. What is the future of the Democratic Party? Will it use populism for good, or will it use it for this $1.9 trillion monstrosity of a bill we just saw passed into uh, into law. Lots of great conversations here in the Brian Nichols Show as of late. And, of course, continuing with that, onto the show, Nick Gillespie here on the Brian Nichols Show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Nick, absolutely. Thank you so much for returning to the Brian Nichols Show. And we were talking before we uh, started to record, busy as ever. And, uh, my goodness, you thought... Yeah. 
maybe after an era of Trump that things would calm down some, but my goodness, the uh, the Biden administration and uh, all the wacky things that have been happening thereafter, they're keeping us very busy. So what's been going on over in uh, in your sector over at Reason? You know, I, I got to tell you, I, I too was hoping for, you know, a couple of weeks off or something. Uh, 2021, you know, what it were like, not even, a, you know, into the third month or we're barely into the third month and it's shaping up to be like 2020 on steroids with, you know, I don't know, testosterone and androgen thrown in as well or estrogen. I mean, this is a cluster fudge. Um, and what I am most exercised about right now, and, I, and I've been working on a couple things related to this, is just the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act, which is about to become law, um, has been passed through uh, completely along party lines. Uh, the Democratic Party managed to you know, eke out a victory in this, partly because Donald Trump was such a complete jackass between losing in November and, uh, you know, uh, the vote being certified in January that he threw the elect, he threw the Senate to Democrats. But it is the Democrats fault. This is a massive spending bill that I think, um, you know, it caps 20 years worth of the government of both sides, both parties in every way, trying to make more and more people clients of the state. Yeah. And what this this law does, you know, and and, and I mean, I you know, I'm interrupting myself. I'm I'm so flustered here, you know. If you go back and you look at the early George W. Bush years, and you know, forget for a second, and of course we should never forget, and we should never forgive, you know, war, you know, the war and things that uh, George W. Bush uh, did. But when you look at his domestic policy agendas, and particularly things like Medicare prescription drugs, uh, you know, giving basically free or reduced price drugs to seniors who are the wealthiest sector of our economy, you know, giving them more free crap to have, you know, since then it's just been bigger and bigger, both Republicans and Democrats. And right now we, we are witnessing, you know, the kind of consolidation of that in a law, which among other things, expands subsidies for Obamacare insurance policies, subsidies that will go to households making as much as five or up to $580,000. So this has nothing to do with need. It has, you know, I'm, I'm a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. I, I believe that the, uh, that the government, including the federal government, has a role in helping people who are down on their luck, who, you know, uh, for whatever reason, cannot by their own volition participate fully in the economy or in the society or whatever. This is not about that. This is about giving something to everybody so that they owe the state. Um, and it is, it's, you know, it's, it's a dark place to be because it's coming off last year. We spent $4 trillion on COVID relief, you know, spend special spending on COVID half, you know, a bunch of that hasn't even gone out. You know, we're still waiting on shovel ready jobs from the, the stimulus under, uh, under Barack Obama to be, you know, activated, but we're spending all of this money. Joe Biden has called this a down payment, not, you know, not the end of what he's going to do this year. One point nine trillion dollars to go to, you know, people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And here's the worst part. It's all being done in the name of protecting us from covid, ending the, the pandemic, et cetera. Uh, according to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, one percent is directly related to kind of pandemic, uh, to vaccinations and things like that. Five percent 
somehow related to coronavirus and whatnot. The rest is just pure sugar. Uh, you know, it's, it's sugar that is being put in our tongues and it's gasoline being poured on the economy. It's just it, so that's that's what I'm up to. I'm Thank just, you for asking. Yeah, well, I say and I'm also just waiting for us to actually get infrastructure week accomplished from uh, from Trump. Oh, man, every day is infrastructure week. <laughs> I know. You know? Yeah, we, I know we are all in pins and needles waiting. Um, But Nick, uh, you know, we, we look right now and I think you're kind of you're touching on this note. And we've, we've actually discussed this a couple of times in the show here over the past few weeks where there seems to be this resounding understanding and acknowledgement that there's just something wrong. And, and and we're starting to see across the board, left, right, center, your average person just kind of can feel the temperature. They're, they're, they're getting this feeling that, yeah, something's not right. And I guess it's leading more to this populist mentality on both sides, frankly. Yep. Um, and you you had actually shared an article and it was focusing that on on you're seeing this this I'll say it's a populist takeover of the Democratic Party in some respects, and it's kind of coupling with a populist progressivism. And and let's kind of dig into this. What's what's that going to do from an actual policy perspective to the Democratic Party right now in 2021 moving forward into 2022? Um, are they actually going to be, I guess, getting these policies into action or is it going to be more rhetoric than anything? Uh, well, you know, uh, I think uh, we have to say they're going to be getting a lot of this stuff into policy. I mean, from from the populist left, you know, progressives, uh, and I'm thinking of people like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Congress. You know, they're saying that Joe Biden is a centrist. He's a corporatist. He, you know, he doesn't go far enough. Uh, from any place other than that, you know, small wing in the insane asylum, you know, what we are seeing is Joe Biden is massively blowing out any, uh, you know, any gesture towards restraint in terms of spending. I mean, it's only in, in a world where, um, you know, Bernie Sanders is not the president. Can you be talking about, oh, well, you know, this this one point nine trillion dollar bill doesn't include a 15 dollar minimum wage effective immediately. So it's a you know, it's a crap bill or something. This is huge. We are seeing populist. Um, you know, kind of initiatives being put into place. And by populist, I think, you know, it's good to think about it in two ways. And there is a Republican version of this, which is, uh, you know, which is regrettable and wrong. The good thing about that is that it's not in power, at least not yet. And right. we, we can talk about what's going to happen in 2022. But, um, you know, populism consists of two things. One, it has a lot to do with demonizing uh, demonizing elites and and the establishment and whatnot because those are the ones who are holding everyone back. When the Democrats talk about uh, corporations, when they talk about big tech, when they talk about billionaires, the Koch brothers, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Russia, whatever, they're constantly inveying and 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 in, invoking elites who are running things and that we need to take power back from them. Um, you know, so there's that rhetoric and that gesture. We're going to bring the, you know, we're going to put the people back in power as opposed to the elites. Uh, the second part is populism always and everywhere is about shoveling huge amounts of money, hopefully taken from the plutocrats into the people's pockets. And that's what we're seeing now. And Biden is, you know, pushing a tax plan uh, that is going to increase taxes in various ways. The one thing that we'll never see 
Uh, and sadly, this is true under Republicans as well. We'll never we'll never see a president uh, come in and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually cut spending year over year. That's that's and I'm really going to do it. Barack Obama, weirdly, and like very few people remember this, when he ran for president, he was promising a dollar like a year over year budget cut, you know, and that was man, that's like a that's not just like a different you know, decade, it's like a different planet. <laughs> Literally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I do think that we're going to see a lot of that. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, and I think libertarians sometimes uh, focus a little too, uh, you know, we always focus too much on the government, right? Uh, because, you know, if, if, you know, the government is always going to get bigger. And like, if, if all you do is think about the size of government, you can, you will never take advantage of the freedom we have, including, you know, the kind of technological advances that allow us to be doing this, you know, without having to go through WCBS or, you know, legacy media or anything. So there's a lot of good things going on in the world. But we also focus a lot on government spending or government taxes. The regulatory regime is really important. And one of the things that Joe Biden is doing, and I think this goes along with the populist stuff, he's putting in people at the Federal uh, Trade Commission, at the at the Federal Communication Commission, People who want to regulate every, virtually every transaction between people, uh, you know, and this is something where he's been heavily influenced, I think, by somebody like Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is self-consciously popular. She comes out of a tradition where people like Louis Brandeis, the former Supreme Court justice, you know, way back in the day, who was one of the great regulators of his day and antitrust people, they, you know, the Democrats and Joe Biden wants to have a federal regulator, somebody who knows better, overseeing every transaction made in America so that the little guy doesn't get screwed over by the big bad corporation or the elite or the, you know, the person who owns the store. So, you know, this is this is this is a dark moment. Uh, you know, I'm talking to you from California. The sun is out, but it's a dark moment. Yeah. And we see just across the pond, I'm in Philly, I'm referring to over in London. Yeah. Um, we just saw this with Piers Morgan. I mean, he just got, and I'm not trying to go into this whole cancel culture <laughs> conversation, right? But I mean, he ends up, it, it, he actually had, um, a formal complaint put into what is essentially the, uh, the UK's version of, um, the FCC in this case. Yeah. Uh, but only they actually have teeth. And that's, yeah concerning <laughs> to, to say that I, uh, no i agree i agree and and you know just to uh, you know uh, you know in england uh, they don't have the first amendment they don't right. have a written constitution the way they do uh, the way we do and also like a ton of the media the broadcast media is actually government owned it's right. you know it's not you know so so it's really bad but also in the united states we have uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, just uh, threw in support for a uh, law in the Texas legislature that would allow anybody who gets kicked off of a social media platform to sue that platform. And he explicitly said it's because conservatives are being silenced on these platforms. So you have, uh, you know, are uh, arguably or ostensibly a, a conservative Republican saying that the, you know, the state is going to start affecting the way private media companies can do stuff. Uh, on the other side, you have a bunch of Democratic uh, uh, members of Congress who are constantly writing letters. You know, oh, I'm just writing a letter. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the freaking government and I'm just writing a letter to, 
you know, various social media companies saying, you know, I want to make sure that you're not allowing hate speech or you're doing this or you're doing that. This, um, you know, this is a moment where uh, it's it's not simply, um, you know, cancel culture, which if if what we're talking about are, you know, the, the Dr. Seuss Foundation, who, to be quite honest, I say this after having raised two children and having to read Dr. Seuss books. I hate Dr. Seuss. I hated Dr. Seuss when I knew he that he had made a bunch of really uh, disturbingly anti-Japanese, anti-Japanese American cartoons during World War II. I really hated him growing up, and I hated him as a parent, having to read The Cat in the Hat a million times to my kids or are better children's authors. Having said that, all of that, you know, the Seuss Foundation, his literary estate, can decide to put in or out of publication, you know, in or out of print, whatever they want. That is one thing. And and I think their decision is stupid for a variety of reasons. It's another thing when you have the state starting to talk about controlling speech. And that's where we're at. Uh, Kentucky, uh, recently, there's some jughead in Kentucky who uh, is pushing a law that would criminalize insulting a cop or making a, a rude gesture at a cop. Like, you know, I don't know about you, like my grandparents all emigrated here from crap parts of Europe, Italy and Ireland in the 19 teens. And I'm pretty sure they didn't come here so that, you know, their grandson could possibly get thrown in jail for telling a, a cop to F off and giving him the finger. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's also leading to why, we're seeing this growing resentment across the board that does kind of foster yeah. this populist response. And yeah. I'm just like, well, why folks out there in, in leadership, why are you just going to pour more gas in the fire? Are they just tone deaf to the situation that's that's happening around them? Yeah, I, I well, you know, it's everybody uh, to say everybody's in an echo chamber. I, I actually is not true. I think politicians, political leaders are. Uh, and, you know, the the whisperers to people in power are, you know, they are they're filling people's heads, filling leaders heads with ideas that you got to do this, you got to do this. I think, um, you know, I am unfortunately very online and I spend way too much time on Twitter. I see you there every time I'm there. Yeah. So like oh, yeah. I know you're part of the problem, too. But, you know, we we confuse um, a lot of social media for reality. And, you know, yes. one of the things that's amazing is that only about 10 percent uh, or 20 percent of, of um, adult Americans have a Twitter account. You know, it's less than 10 percent produce 90 percent of the content on that. You you can easily be confused that Twitter is somehow real life. But it's it's you know, this is a case of you know, you don't want to mistake the map for the territory. And what, when Twitter is talking about America or the world, it's not actually in touch with most of that. Um, and this is where I do, you know, uh, despite having my, uh, my kind of Irish up right now, I, um, I'm, I'm hopeful in the sense that it does seem to me that, you know, what we learn again and again, and this is something that my recent colleague Matt Welch and I wrote about in a book a decade ago, The Declaration of Independence, is that fewer and fewer people are identifying as Republican or Democrat. And that means like when Gallup calls people up on the phone, you know, you're anonymous. People are still not willing to say, you know what, I think of myself as a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, the, the number of people who call themselves independent recently peaked at 50 percent, um, according to Gallup. And, you know, that is a good sign. It's a sign that there is a vast reservoir 
of, um, you know, of people who are not idiots in America. Um, and I think that's very, uh, that's very encouraging, but yeah. before we get there, we're, we have a lot of slogging to go through, you know, Democrats who are flexing because they are in power. Uh, they should not, they should not be controlling the Senate. They lost seats in the house. They lost seats in state legislatures around the country in many ways, other than the top line, um, you know, election uh, in November, the Democrats did not do well because their economic plan is not popular. They are not popular. The Republicans did not do as well as they could have. You know, Trump uh, crapped his own bed. If he had taken, you know, if he had turned it down five or 10 percent, he would have won re-election. He cost the Republicans the Senate because he acted like an insane person after losing um, you know, uh, but, the, you know, so so we have all of this to contend with. But the upside of it is that, you know, more and more people are saying, you know what, I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican. And I think that's a good thing. Oh, I think it's a great thing. Um, and I guess yeah. then, then the, the proverbial question, proverbial question um, yeah. is, well, how do the, the folks there now in the, the other camp, the libertarian camp out there who are, I would say, yep. now trying to present themselves as a viable option. Um, how can we reach people? And maybe let me re-ask this because that's the, maybe the question we always ask. How can we reach more people? Right, Nick? Um, but let me ask you this. What are we doing wrong? What are, what yeah. are we, what are we focusing on too much that people just don't care about? Yeah, you know, uh, that's a fascinating question. And also, let me also clarify a little bit about like when you say, okay, what are libertarians doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? You know, there is the Libertarian Party as a as a political enterprise. And I, I'm not registered. I, I do not believe I ever registered for the Libertarian Party. I might have back when I was younger, when I first uh, was able to vote and stuff like that. But just as a kind of matter, of course, and as a journalist, like I don't belong to any political party. I, I support most of what the Libertarian Party is doing. I think, you know, they're the, they are the only party that comes close to representing what I feel. And if I, I, you know, I vote for them in every election I vote for, I, I don't think I've ever voted for, uh, I got, I don't know if I've, I voted for Walter Mondale in 1984 as a, as a young kid in my first presidential election. And since then, I don't think I've ever voted for a major party um, candidate at any level. Having said that, uh, you know, there's the LP, which is a political operation. And then there's the broader based libertarian movement, which we're all kind of part of. And I think um, the first thing is that, you know, we are winning in some profound ways that are really important. And we need to recognize those and kind of feel good about ourselves and also tell people who are interested in this stuff, look, these are libertarian wins. And I think that that includes things like the beginning of the end of the drug war, um, you know, and, and it's not people can either do drugs or not. The point of getting rid of the drug war is that it, it's like getting rid of the Cold War. You pull on that thread and it is so woven through different aspects of right. American life. It, it's, it just it like, you know, it, it, you, you undo this whole garment that is, you know, it's police, it's school, it's uh, addiction services, it's the courts, uh, it's foreign policy, you know, that are that are perverted and warped by drug prohibition and the black markets and all of the horrible things that come out of all of that. Um, I, you know, we're winning on that. We're winning on school choice, uh, you know, and thank this is one of the uh, you know, positive outcomes of COVID, which is a terrible way to put it. But, you know, it's like people realize that public school 
is, you know, public school, the last priority uh, is, you know, is teaching kids yep. and people are looking for the exit, you know, and, and there's a bunch of laws that are being pushed uh, even by idiots as milquetoast as Mitt Romney, you know, pushing uh, legislation that would say if, you know, federal federal dollars go into education, whether they should or not is a separate issue. Um, but, you know, if if schools aren't reopened by a certain point, then X amount of the federal dollars goes to kids and their parents to go wherever they want. At the state level, we're seeing, uh, you know, people are are looking for alternatives. That's good. Um, uh, you know, on a variety of lifestyle issues, things like marriage equality, where the state can no longer discriminate based on its prejudices. You know, these are these are all good things. Occupational licensing. You know, we're winning in. Uh, you know, we're winning in many profound ways. I think where we're going wrong is that we have not been able to articulate a series of visions of what the alternative would look like when you get the government, not just out of your life, but uh, where the government stops doing so much, but also where you are free to create the types of communities, the types of worlds, the types of businesses that people want. I mean, that's all around us. Um, and I think pushing the idea that, you know, what we believe in are things like autonomy, you know, that individuals should have the right uh, and the recognized right to live however they want to choose among, you know, Ludwig von Mises would say at some point, uh, among all the competing opportunities of life, um, that we have empathy, uh, that we are looking at the way other people are experiencing the world and we want to help them and we want to build communities that are robust and resilient and that help people who are, you know, who don't have a lot of access to, uh, you know, resources to get more like that. And then the type of businesses, uh, you know, and, and there I think we do a pretty good job. But we, we need to start accentuating more the positive possibilities of, uh, of libertarianism rather than, I think, looking only at the negative outcomes of government uh, kind of control, influence, regulation of more and more of our lives. And, and then the other thing I would say, and I realize I'm you know, just yapping, you caught me at like a caffeine high or something like that. But you know, the other thing I, I think that we need to be paying more attention to is kind of the psychology of freedom. Um, what I, I've been thinking about this, uh, you know, I've been with reason, you know, since I think the 19th century, but, uh, you know, I, I, I literally joined here in 1993 in late 1993 towards the end of the nineties, I wrote a story uh, called child proofing the world, which ended up anticipating a lot of, you know, the kind of coddling of the American mind or the, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, the outrages that Lenore Skenazy, who now writes for Reason, wrote about in um, in uh, free range uh, free range childhood, free range parenting and stuff. We over the past thirty or forty years, on a, on a psychological level, the way we've been raising kids, the way that we have been talking about threats in society, we've made it seem as if the world is increasingly dangerous, when in fact the world is not for kids and for most of us. You know, and we have like so many more options on how to live, you know, and, and again, this goes, you know, and it goes from really profound things. Like if you are, you know, you can now marry whoever you want, like that's just the positive good, but it's also on the trivial things. Like you can now work, you, you, you don't have to dress up to go to work all the time. There's just so much more lived freedom everywhere in the world. But we, at the same time as a society, we've been talking about things as if it's getting worse and worse. Uh, you know, racism, 
you know, the idea that racism is worse now than it was in, you know, 1975 or 1955, which you hear all the time is insane. The same for sexism, uh, the same for classism and whatnot. And it's not to say these things have completely disappeared, but like we talk about the world, we talk about middle-class people. The middle-class doesn't exist anymore, even though somehow more people go to college as a percentage of uh, recently graduated high school seniors and stuff like that. Nothing is affordable, but we have more stuff than ever. Um, we have created a world in which people are timid, afraid. Uh, they don't have trust in anything. They And rightly, in many ways, they don't have trust in government. They don't have trust in a lot of institutions, but they're constantly looking for somebody to protect them. And they believe themselves to be irreparably damaged or bruised every time the wind blows a little too hard. And, you know, we, we got to start thinking about what, what are the psychological dimensions um, that are necessary? What's the psychological makeup of people who have, a, you know, a, just a, a ton of options every day to live their life and create meaning the way they want to? Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it absolutely did. And actually, so my day job, I'm a sales executive. And one of the things that you you mentioned, this is fundamental in sales, is painting that better future. How Mm -hmm. can you help show them a path to winning? And I think that right there is absolutely one thing. Not only have we not done a good job at, but we've been woefully like just pushing to the side. And I think to the point that you're making, we... We do have areas that we have been winning on, school choice, criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. war on drugs. So I think it's important that we you know, not just get stuck into the party label, but also st- right. focus on where the policy wins are actually happening, right? And then yeah. make sure we're articulating that these are, to your point, actual libertarian policy wins. And, you know, the other thing that I would argue, um, and I, I lose a lot of people with this, so, um, you know, more than expecting to be uh, cut off mid-sentence, but um, I have over the past few years, and again, you know, and I said earlier that I'm a libertarian, I'm not an anarchist, so I don't have a problem with the state existing in the state at various levels, especially if they're fighting amongst themselves, or we can pit them against each other, like parents in a divorce or something, um, but um I, I have taken to uh, kind of defining myself as at, not as a libertarian, like I no longer talk about libertarian as a noun. I like to think of it more as an adjective where it is a temperament. It is a mindset. It's a proclivity. Um, it's a default setting, you know, in my operating system. And I think everybody should have this where, you know, you are libertarian if you think, OK, the starting point of every discussion is that individuals should have the maximum freedom to make choices, you know, and it's not, it's not absolute. Uh, it's not dogmatically so. Um, but that's the, you know, that's the starting point. And that if people want to start saying, well, you know, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to eat that. You're not allowed to smoke that. You're not allowed to engage in this kind of activity. You, it, the burden is on the other person or on the state to say, no, this is why. Um, and I think, if we present ourselves as engaged and, you know, upbeat, happy warriors against kind of restriction and regulation, oppression, repression, um, but also where we're not dogmatic. I mean, if, if you walk into every conversation and you are, you know, like the non-aggression principles shall be the whole of the law, um, you know, which is more of an anarchistic thing, I think, than a libertarian thing per se. We can split hairs on that. But it's like, 
you're not um, you're not you 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 are going to be able to show that you have the biggest libertarian you know kind of ball sack in the room. But I don't know that you're going to convince anybody who doesn't already agree with you. And I've seen this happen where you actually alienate a lot of people who actually agree with you. And so, and I'm not saying that, you know, don't have principles or anything like that, but um, I think, you know, that shift from being dogmatic to being kind of temperamental, uh, Michael Munger, the economist at Duke, or political scientist and economist at Duke, talks about being a directional libertarian, you know, that the idea is that policies are good to the extent that they're moving in the right direction and the direction is towards freedom. I think that's helpful as well. Amen. Oh, and and I think it's also important as we, you know, this is a what a great way to put a bow on this episode because it mm. is important to pay attention to the way that we are having these conversations because as you start to alienate more and more people, as you push people into yeah. their respective bubbles, it just fosters more of that resentment which then just leads into again, this populist mentality. So with that being said, Nicholas yeah. B, obviously there's going to be a lot that's going to be happening <laughs> for uh, oh forever. It seems like it seems like every yep. time we turn on the, the news, it's a breaking news headline story somewhere. So, yeah. Nick, uh, obviously we want to make sure people are staying up to date. It's all happening in uh, in your world. Obviously, the interview uh, with Nick Gillespie over on Reason, uh, but also the mm-hmm. Reason Roundtable. Where else can folks go ahead and find you and keep up to date? What's all that's happening in your world? Uh, sadly, and I, I hate to uh, you know suggest this, but I'm on Twitter all the time <laughs> at Nick Gillespie, all lowercase, all one word. Um, and Reason.com is a place where all of my stuff ends up, as well as all of that of my you know smarter and more interesting and with it uh, colleagues at Reason. It's a, it's a very good site for all of that. And if I can extend this conversation. With a and also throw in a ray, uh, open up the window and let Please. a ray of light in yes. a little bit. I think you're absolutely right. You know that you know that we're in this kind of barbell or dumbbell version of populism, where you know on both the right and the left, you have these like large, large and growing orbs of you know dense, dumb people that are dead weight intellectually, culturally, politically. Um, I think they are um, alienating themselves more and more because they're pulling away from the center. And I'm, I'm a big fan of the uh, uh, Stanford political scientist Morris Fiorina, who a couple of years ago wrote a book called Unstable Majorities. And in that, what he pointed out was we're, you know, for the past 20 years, we've been in a historically weird moment where control of the federal government, the House, the Senate, the White House, and you know, different iterations or configurations of that keep flipping. And this hasn't happened in like over a century. And the reason it keeps happening, he says, is because neither party has a clear majority, partly because they've sorted into distinct entities, a liberal party and a conservative party. But the people who are who run those parties, the activists who actually control the platforms and the candidates that run in those parties are even further extreme than, you know, they don't represent very many people in this large and growing middle of independents who I would argue are generally libertarian. You know, they like free minds. They like being able to live how they want and talk how they want. And they like free markets, you know, not in absolute terms, but, the, you know, they like capitalism. They don't want a government controlled economy. Um, and what Fiorina says is that what has been happening is that a um you know a, a party gets into power and then they push very quickly when at the minute that they can they push an extreme version of their party's agenda which alienates voters and then so 2 years later or 4 years later maybe 6 years later you get a reversal and this is i mean this is what happened 
with, you know, Barack Obama got in in 2008. Uh, by 2010, the Republicans had, you know, the House and the Senate. Uh, a little bit later, uh, you know, Donald Trump gets in with a Republican Congress, craps the bed. Uh, you know, now we're in a moment where the Democrats have complete control on a party line vote. They they push through a ridiculous piece of garbage legislation that has nothing to do with the stated need or the stated rationale for the bill and what the country actually needs now. We don't, you know, people making $585,000 don't need more government handouts, right? You know, but but Democratic Party donors do and, you know, et cetera. Um, so in 2022, I think, you know, there's a, a, an extremely good chance that the uh, Republicans retake the House. And then, you know, maybe in 2024, they win the White House again, um, you know, and uh, and the Senate. And then they put in their dumb version of this thing, you know, that's being coming out of like Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz or other people who are like, you know, I, I mean, it's like you you look at it. It's like monsters on parade like that, you know. But yeah. what I'm saying is, is that we are in this world now where the parties are so far apart and they're, they're run by insane people who then force an agenda through successfully that leads to the other party being elected. I think that's actually a ray, you know, that's me being optimistic because I think at a certain point, whether it's the libertarians who, I don't know that the, the LP will ever become the actual, you know, like number two, you right. know, they're, they are the third largest party in America. Right. But it's like, Man, that's a big drop off right between two and three. Um, but I do think that the LP has a, a fundamental role to play in um, influencing the, the agenda of the major parties, as well as changing certain types of political conversations. And I think the small L libertarian movement has a big role to play in that, in getting people to start saying, you know, especially as debt goes to twenty three trillion dollars. And then, you know, you blink and then suddenly it's going to be thirty three trillion dollars because this stuff doesn't. You know, it doubles. We're approaching light speed at this point. Um, you know, and our our what our identical twin who went out to Alpha Centauri comes back and suddenly it's not that we're, you know, we're 90 years old and he's still 30 or something. It's like now we're like, you know, a hundred mil a hundred trillion dollars in debt and he's, you know, got walking around money or something. Um, but you know, I I think this is we, you know, we're we're coming close to an inflection point. Um, and and which is good. And if anything, and you said not necessarily say, oh, well, the good thing that came from COVID, but I think a good thing that did come from COVID was that mm -hmm. while people were confined to their homes, for better or for worse, and, and that's a, another conversation yep. for a different day, um, but it gave people time to think and start to ask more questions. Why are, is this happening? Why are we doing this? Right. How are we going to not let this happen again? And as we start to ask more questions, I think people are going to start looking for answers and it's on us to make sure that the answers are there yeah. readily available for sure. And I, I just, uh, and I realize now I'm, I'm like holding you hostage on oh, your God, own show, is, but I love um, this. you know, one of the things that I think is important for us coming out of COVID and I think the lockdown in general was in error um, for, oh, for sure. any number of reasons, like not only, uh, you know, it was a mistake in the first place and it did very little to, uh, you know, to, if anything, to uh, to limit the number of people who died, uh, you know, and then it was enforced arbitrarily, uh, you know, as somebody who lived in New York for a good chunk of this. I mean, you know, between oh, Bill de Blasio yeah. and Andrew Cuomo, it's like it's just a nightmare. Um, you know, the governor of New Jersey is an idiot. The governor uh, of Pennsylvania is an idiot. Connecticut, idiot, you know, lots of idiots in the Northeast. Um, but. 
one of the things that we need to really drive home, and again, without being jerks about it, but what we have seen over the past year is a demonstration project of what happens when the government gets more and more control of every aspect of our everyday Everything. life, when they get to define who is essential and who is not essential, what business is essential and not essential, who gets, who gets to manufacture and distribute tests for a disease that is deadly. You know, it's, I mean, it's like we have to make sure that we're getting the message out that the problem in the past year wasn't too, you know, wasn't too little government regulation of our lives. It was too much, uh, too much centralized power. I look back at the, um, you know, at the financial crisis and it's disturbing to me at the time, reason and a bunch of people. And it was very lonely when you were saying, you know what, the stimulus bill is is BS. Uh, you know what, that the government would be better laying low for a little bit and letting the economy come back. That the, the you know, the crisis was caused by government actions. And then the government says it's going to solve it. You know, it's like Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Um, you know, and a couple of years after the, you know, the recovery started, people were like, oh, you know what, it's like the lesson was that government didn't do enough. Like we really need to remember the past and rehearse that and point out when people start slipping into a, a totally bogus vision of history. And we need to be doing that now because it'll be a real tragedy. Um, and, and there's a real threat of this because both the Republicans and the Democrats, I mean, last year we spent $4 trillion in spending, you know, somehow related to COVID. And it's like, we have nothing to show for that. Um, and, you know, when we have $2 trillion this and then whatever else comes this year, we're not going to have a lot to show for. What we're going to have is more debt, inflation, weirdness. And even when the money goes away, we're going to have this, um, you know, kind of like beach foam scum on the shoreline of government regulation and hangover and stuff like that. And we really need to be talking about, um, you know, what, what we've learned in the last year is that it's better to decentralize decision making, to give people good information and then let them figure out how to deal with stuff rather than thinking that people like Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Mike Pence or, you know, whoever are, are going to be, you know, we're really uh, we're really smart to put our futures in these people's hands. Right. I mean, like if we were to make one argument for that, do we want Andrew Cuomo's nursing home policy on a national level? I don't think so. Right. Uh, and I think yeah. that's across the board now being resoundingly agreed upon. But with that being said, Nicholas B, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you, as always, for all the work you're doing over at uh, Reason, uh, but also the interview with Nicholas B and the Reason Roundtable. I always make sure I hit that download button. I'm subscribed uh, every single week. Thank you for all the work you guys are doing. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Always uh, an honor to be with you. When we're talking about living a truly free and independent life, we mean it. And that's exactly what Gary Collins, who is the creator of The Simple Life, set out to accomplish. And now you have a chance to learn all the secrets that Gary has developed over decades of trying it out himself, building these amazing courses. As you can go to thesimplelifenow.com and access three amazing courses. One being the Off the Grid Master Course, two being the How to Finance Your Off-Grid Home Course, and three, How to Find Your Dream 
Steam, Off Grid Property Course, and get an awesome 10% off at checkout by using code TBNS10. That's right, you too can learn how to live a truly free and independent lifestyle by living off grid. And all these amazing courses are delivered to you by Yes One Gary Collins from the SimpleLifeNow.com. Use code TBNS10 at checkout for 10% off your order and start living your free life today. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Nick Gillespie. Nick, thank you for joining The Brian Nichols Show, and thank you, folks, for joining us on, yes, the fourth episode here this week, and another, of course, phenomenal episode with another phenomenal guest. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know the drill. Please go ahead and share today's episode, but when you do share, make sure you go ahead and tag me at B Nichols Liberty. Also, while you're at it, make sure you tag Nick. I will include his social media in the show notes, so it's easier to go ahead and find him as well, but when you tag me at B Nichols Liberty, you can do that on Facebook, Twitter, Minds.com, and Parlor.com. and if you want to go ahead and say hello, well, go ahead and email me, Brian, at Brian nicholsshow.com also if you wanted to go ahead and do some sponsorship inquiries yes the brian nichols show is opening ourselves up again once again for some new sponsorship inquiries so if you are interested in hearing your awesome new product service podcast whatever it may be as a sponsor in an ad or seeing your uh, show or product or service cross-branded with the brian nichols show well make sure you email me brian at brian exciting things uh, coming down the pike here as we expand the program and exciting things coming down here as we expand our, our show this week going to our final episode and that is on Friday with Hannah Cox five episodes this week folks my goodness and we're going to wrap it out with a bang yes Hannah Cox from conservatives concerned about the death penalty returns to the Brian Nichols show we're talking about some policy wins from uh, actually getting uh, the death penalty out of uh, out of practice which is really important because we know how bad the government is at well doing pretty much anything. So, folks, if you enjoyed the episode, as always, like I said, please go ahead and share. But also, if you really, really enjoyed, I ask you to do one thing, and that is head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. That is how, number one, we are able to move up the rankings. More folks are able to find us. But if you could go ahead and leave a quick review, one sentence, why is it that you are a either new or long-term member of the Brian Nichols Show audience? Or, if it's easier, what value do you get from the show. I love to hear uh, what it is that you guys like to, to get from the show or what it is that you like to hear from the show in terms of guests. So uh, please go ahead, get your, your review in because yes, Friday, we're going to go ahead and read our brand new reviews coming up here. Uh, yes, in a couple days. It's like, where? Where did the time go? Uh, we're already almost done with March. It's weird. Well, I say we're half done with March, but still, we're getting close, folks. Um, so make sure you hit subscribe. You don't want to miss that awesome episode with Hannah Koss coming up. But with that being said, folks, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on the Brian Nichols Show for Nick Gillespie. We'll see you Friday. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at BrianNicholsShow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to William at DBPodAudio.com.